we still have work to do to make sure that we create that right upward mobility, the experience for employees, regardless of their ethnicity, or gender, or sexual orientation, or identity, that they feel like this is a place that they belong and that they can thrive and grow. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today is a very special episode as I sit down with my boss, Brian Lamb, the Global Head of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at JPMorgan Chase. Brian joined the bank in May 2020, and he's been an exceptional leader in driving our strategy and holding us accountable for making real progress. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It is so great to talk to you here. Sam, it's great to be here, and I really appreciate the chance to visit together, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Well, let's start at the beginning. So when you were starting out your career, what was your ultimate career goal? I got to tell you, Sam, you know, I may be a little bit, you know, on the outlier here, but I really didn't have it all figured out, Sam. You know, started in college thinking about what I wanted to do. I majored in accounting and finance and probably had dreams of being this financial professional, but I can surely tell you it wasn't as targeted as being in what now is the, you know, the best financial services firm in the world. I still was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But here are some key elements of what I did have, at least my hands around. Number one, I did know that I truly enjoyed having purpose in the work that I did. Like I was pretty clear about that. I grew up in a household with my father as a school teacher for 40 years. My mother worked for the Department of Corrections. I just had a real good sense that impact and purpose meant something to me. So it was just a question of where I would do that, not a question of if. I think the other element that I would tell you helped shape professionally is I had a deep belief in kind of relationships, like the importance of building trust, getting to know the people around you, being vested in other success, really building those mutually beneficial relationships. I just understood that it would be valuable long-term. So as I had a discipline in finance and accounting, I was able to think about those key elements of purpose, relationships to help guide me earlier in my career. I love the relationships piece. I'm not sure people actually think about that when they're starting out, but you did. And I think that's really special. And I can absolutely tell that just knowing you. So how did you end up at J.P. Morgan Chase? Give us a real Cliff Notes version of your career journey to the firm. I would tell you, yeah, it's been a heck of a journey and I, I couldn't be happier with the last year that I've been with J.P. Morgan Chase. Frankly, you know, the best career decision I've ever made. And I was in the corporate headquarters in a number of roles, lines of business, corporate responsibility, ESG, retail banking, commercial banking, you know, wealth management. I was fortunate, Sam, to have a good, robust background. You know, what was key to that is I knew that I could do more. I knew that I wanted to be a part of an institution that could give me the opportunity opportunity around scale and scope, be around some of the brightest minds in the industry, a reputation and brand, and the chance to really kind of live out what principally were key elements that I mentioned earlier around purpose and impact. And I felt J.P. Morgan Chase offered all of those. And I was very lucky to be able to move into the role of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have a deep, deep passion and respect and understanding of the value of treating DNI like a business. And I felt like JP Morgan was going to give me an opportunity to do that. And so it all collided in a very special way, which has brought us to today. So I'm really excited to be here. 
So you're, in fact, the first person to serve as global head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at JPMorgan Chase. And I will, you know, put it out there for our listeners that you are my boss. So this will be a very nice conversation, I'm sure. But no, we've had a really great first year working together. I've really, really enjoyed it. And it's just been a real pleasure for me. So would love for you to tell us, though, about the job. You know, what do you think your most important things are in this role? Well, Sam, listen, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you. It's been a real honor working alongside you to build out something special, not just with the amazing work that we do in Women on the Move, which I hope we get a chance to talk more about. It's just really a, a it's, it's just a special strategy and center of excellence for the firm. But more broadly, you know, 12 months in, you know, what a year, you know, mm-hmm. personally and professionally, it's been tough, you know, but I would tell you the resilience of my colleagues around me, you know, my own family and friends and neighbors that have all felt the impacts of the pandemic all the way through just the raw emotion that has kind of surfaced in a number of ways due to the racial and social awakening. I think we all have been impacted, our business, our clients, right? The communities that you and I, Sam, care so much about. So I don't think anyone was immune globally in terms of what we've been up against. And so I mentioned purpose earlier. Little did I know what I was walking into, you know, three (laughs) weeks after I joined the firm, the tragic death and just really, really terrible experience that so many of us witnessed. The death of George Floyd really kind of was a moment for so many of us to reflect personally and professionally. And I was one of those that did the same thing and felt like I had a responsibility, both for my family and for the firm, you know, to spring into action, not ignore long-term strategy, but frankly, Sam, we didn't have the time to wait. Yeah. You really enter the firm at a most remarkable time. You know, we were in a pandemic already for a few months. We have actually never met each other in person, right? So you might not have even met your team. And you came into this you know, horrible situation. And then, as you mentioned, George Floyd was murdered so shortly after. And who could have really predicted you know, the ramifications from that? But it really did require, I think, an unbelievable amount of empathy and listening and responding to employees and clients all over the world. You know, how did you put yourself in that mindset at that time? You know, a brand new job, a brand new firm, you're doing it remotely, but you're Leadership was needed at that time more than ever. So what was it like getting up every day to try to address what was going on? There's parts of this that you can never really prepare for. You know, no matter how much professional experience you have or me even being a black man in today's environment, which in many ways can be scary and uncertain, there's really nothing that prepares you for what I think many of us felt or experienced. And so I think one of the first things I did is try to really kind of bring the humanity back to what we were all experiencing, pause and slow down and take the opportunity to understand that in so many ways, as colleagues, as friends, as neighbors, as, as you know, clients and the communities that we work with, there's so much more in common that we can rally around. And that that type of thinking and the resilience of the natural human being to bounce back during times of crisis, I think we all really went to that place. And as a leader, I had a responsibility to kind of put a little bit more on my shoulders than most. As a father, as a husband, as a son, as a brother, all those things kind of showed up as well in terms of making sure I did not get disconnected from those that I love. And so that was kind of a place of renewal. Even though there were times where the weight was heavy, I knew, Sam, I had people like you and others that we were frankly locked arms and heading down the same path together. 
That is really interesting to hear you say that. You know, I know having observed what you did in those first few weeks and months, I recall a time when you were coming in to talk to my team early days for the first time and meet them all on Zoom. And before we went down to business, you really took a moment to pause and reflect, reflect on your own experiences about what was going on, ask the team how they were doing. And I will tell you that made a huge impact on the team. You obviously work closely with our HR function and leaders, but it really is something that I think is owned by the business. That is your, you know, your key partners. And I think that's really special. You know, they did not put diversity and inclusion tucked away in a function. It's really part of the business. So tell me about what that made you feel like, you know, coming in with that kind of support behind you. I think it's a really good call out, Sam, because number one, it was intentional around, I'll call it the organizational design and strategy to have diversity, equity, and inclusion ladder up into the operators of the firm, right? Our COOs and co-presidents are operating this global franchise. And, and there was a commitment, both verbally and structurally, that we would weave DEI into everything that we do. And so the structure was intended to kind of be an enabler. I think the other thing that's important is we also want to make sure there's the right level of accountability. And so as we think about driving sustainable change, you know, really pointing to the key elements of a business around having objectives, right, with priorities initiatives and programs that ladder into those priorities that ultimately have metrics that are transparent that we can hold a people you know hold our most senior level leaders accountable to like that framework all works when you've got the right structure in place and i think that was what was not only attractive for me to join the firm i believe it gave us a heck of a running start in terms of driving real change within our business and i believe pretty strongly it's built to last i think another thing that's so valuable to me just in the group is that we have very consistent strategic areas that we're all focused on together and so now there's not only women on the move but there's you know basically six other verticals or five now, and I know we're going to launch another. Can you talk about that? You know, the verticals that we have and the consistency you see across them? Here's really where it becomes really important to be thoughtful in terms of how we're operating the business. So, you know, first, you know, women on the move and the success that it's had was something that I felt like we wanted to scale and where possible leverage the synergies across other communities. Let's be clear, as you think about the intersectionality that is always present, whether it's gender, ethnic diversity, identity, sexual orientation, religion, there are just so many dynamics to the cultural competence that we need to have as a firm. So we wanted to design the business to have the agility to respond to that, but also demonstrate a real commitment to those individual communities and why they're special, why they're different, and why it's so important as a firm at J.P. Morgan Chase. We have differentiated our approach to delivering the right outcomes for those communities. I do think it's so unique to have a company dedicating full-time people, budgets, resources against all of these populations, you know, these centers of excellence. And to me, being able to work with colleagues across all of them has been so valuable and finding women as the connection clearly across all of them has been great. I've really enjoyed that. You know, where do you think the company gets it right today when it comes to DE&I? And where do you think we can improve things? One of the first things I think we get right, Sam, is realizing that we still, quite frankly, have got a steep hill to climb. So one of the first things I think we get right is the standard that we want to set for ourselves. 
pretty high. And that's going to push everyone, including me, to work really hard. A couple of other key elements that I think we're off to a really good start and have good momentum. Number one is accountability. 40 plus thousand managers in the firm. We have a lot of employees working hard each and every day globally. At the end of the day, we do have to hold our most senior level leaders accountable to driving real change. And I think from a framework standpoint, we're positioned and built to do that. And I look forward to building on it. Additionally, disclosure and transparency. We really are trying to be clear around the commitments that we make. Not only are they sizable because we're a large institution, but they have to be metric driven and they have to be tied to sustainable change. And that all ladders up into the idea of DNI as a business. And maybe the last thing is I got to tell you, when you look at our people, we have outstanding talent all over the world that we continue to find ways to create the right experience for them. We're seeing improvements in our representation results generally across the board. We still have work to do to make sure that we create that right upward mobility, the experience for employees, regardless of their ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation or identity, that they feel like this is a place that they belong and that they can thrive and grow. With a year now under your belt here, what have been some of the challenges or I guess the hardest things when it comes to trying to improve this as a whole? And what do you think other companies struggle with when it comes to their own DNI efforts? Culture change is not easy, you know, particularly when it's across 60, 70 or more countries, various lines of business. There's lots of complexity to that. I think the hard thing is even for ourselves, we're just used to moving at such a rapid pace of change and pointing to very tangible evidence that we're bending the curve. And so I think as a firm, we have this insatiable appetite to be the best. And we're just going to have to make sure that as we're going after the goals that we have in DEI, you know, do we have the right actions and measurable steps to get to the improvement we're looking for? So that's that's hard to have that discipline day after day over an extended period of time. I think the other thing that that's hard, we just simply have to deliver on is at the end of the day, our success won't be measured by my strategy or the action plan or, or frankly measured by you know how we're viewed even publicly. I think our measurement is we've got a few stakeholders that we're working hard for each and every day. And 255,000 of them are our colleagues around the world. And so the real measurement is, are they getting the experience that we've committed to them? And then the other part is our clients and our communities. You know, they want to interact and do business with and partner with a firm that values diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it shows up in the way that we face off to each other. And so doing that in a consistent way over a very long period of time. So it is the way that we do business. Like those are key elements that are hard, but fair. These are such long-term projects. So I agree with you. It's not going to change overnight. Do you think that there really exists something around diversity fatigue? Like, do we run the risk of having colleagues just feel tired that they do this so long and so often, whether or not we see results and hopefully we do, but if we don't, you know, will people get tired that we're, we're still pushing this? I think there are probably elements of anything that has such a heavy weight of emotion and there's such a deep psychology to it that is woven into the fabric of who we are as human beings. And so when you think about the bias that we try to become aware of and and overcome, if you think about the, the vast array of differences that make us unique as individuals, as cultures, as communities, as countries, all of that is not only emotionally heavy, it's complex. So there's no doubt that from time to time, we might need to renew. But I draw a distinction between being fatigued and going backwards or stopping. And so what I would encourage my colleagues and friends and partners that are listening is as you think about those moments in time where you're emotionally, physically, spiritually, or psychologically fatigued, 
You may run into that. Find that place of renewal. Take that space. Find the time because you earned it and you deserve it. And it's that level of renewal that I think will also inspire you. That renewal may come from friends, colleagues, maybe come from something fun you like to do, you know, whether you want to unplug. I mean, there's all of these ways to get it done, but be sure to do it Mm. and hold on to that humanity because we can't go backwards. We can't get off track. And so I think we owe it to each other to bring each other along, even when there's times where we want to catch our breath. You know, one thing that we've done in your team meetings is something called humans at JPMC, where each of your team members has come in with one slide of pictures and descriptions of who they are. And what I've loved about this is all of our colleagues come in with this full picture. It's not just the work. In fact, work is a small piece. It's their families, it's their passions, their hobbies, the marathons they ran, the food they cook, the parents that influenced them. And that to me has been so inspiring. And by the way, I've learned a ton about my colleagues that I just never knew before. Uh, I learned you play basketball, for example, and I think you're probably very tall. So I'll have to confirm that when I see you actually in person. But it's been a really nice way to refresh and get to know people in a different level. Yeah, Sam, you know, it's funny when we when we started the humans at JP Morgan Chase conversations, I think early on we were like, you know, kind of getting to know each other and and having the conversation on our families, our backgrounds, and maybe showing a a couple of pictures that illustrated experiences in our lives. As the conversations grew and, and matured, there was also just so many connection points where you would hear each other say, you know what, I'm from that city, or my father used to do this, or my husband did this, or my kids love to do that as well. And we just started to find all of these intersections where in our own way, we were different and obviously have been charting our own paths, but in so many ways, there were similarities that brought us together. And I have this philosophy that I didn't invent, but it's something that I think about a lot around having a high-performing team. And I think the trust that we were building with each other was fundamental. So let's talk about the firm's commitment to improving Black and Latinx communities. It's a five-year, $30 billion commitment that really goes toward improving the racial wealth divide and addressing systemic racism and looking at very specific ways that we as a bank can do that with more mortgages, business loans, affordable housing, and other things in the community. Why is the path forward so important to you? And what do you really want to achieve with this? The path forward was designed with hundreds of colleagues from around the firm plugging in to provide their voice, their insight, research, and data experiences internal partners, external partners, advocacy groups, civil rights organizations, human rights organizations, all played a role in helping to design what we believe is an intentional, sustainable effort to drive and address the issues related to systemic racism. We believe that the way that it's designed is going to go after some of those root cause challenges. So for example, 26 billion of the 30 billion really speaks to home ownership and affordable housing. We know, and the data would tell us, as well our clients and partners, that the ability to create wealth, sustainable wealth, I call it generational wealth, in many ways, owning a home and being able to have an affordable home is a difference maker. And we as a financial institution, quite frankly, have a role and responsibility in that regard. We also thought a lot 
about entrepreneurship and business growth and how do we play a role in being a catalyst there with our scale and scope and our capabilities and solutions that we have for business owners. We wanted to lean in. We felt like we could do more. And that's a key component of providing more access to capital. Specifically, we talk a lot about leaning in in the Black and Latinx communities, identifying categories where we were underpenetrated. And we knew there was a market, a pent up demand to spend money with suppliers. And so one of the things that we did is we designed a long-term large commitment, over $750 million with Black and Latinx suppliers. Philanthropy, even though we did not lead with it, Sam, it is still a companion and a very companion solution to how we can have impact, how we can mobilize and activate partners in the community, CDFIs and other organizations that can put capital to work quickly in those local cities and markets that we know have historically been left behind. And there's so much more that we thought about around this, but principally when the day is done, we agree that we would be transparent, it would be metric-driven, business-led, and that we would hold ourselves accountable with periodic inspection and disclosure around our progress. One of the interesting elements too that I think the program features is that we're working with so many different entities. It's not just one individual, it's communities and students and entrepreneurs. And as you said, our own employees, especially when it comes to where we spend our money. Why do you think it's important for us to have so many angles into this problem? You know, why did we have to take such a multifaceted approach? You know, look, it's a dynamic issue. I mean, I don't think and have not seen any evidence to suggest there's really one solution or even a handful of solutions that are going to address the hundreds of years that have gotten in the way of equitable prosperity. I think it's a global issue. Look at some of the other communities that continue to deal with discrimination, you know, that are even outside the Black and Latinx communities. What we see and hear today in the LGBT plus community, what we're witnessing firsthand in the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. All of those are long-standing issues that principally we have to match up long-term solutions. So the comprehensive nature of this and the business-led nature of this, we believe is going to be a difference maker and is a unique approach that we haven't really seen as many do. And frankly, I hope we inspire others to do as much or more. The last part I would tell you is I mentioned earlier the centers of excellence, like women on the move. It's important for me to say that even though the 30 billion, the racial equity commitment and all the components of it. It's important to say that Women on the Move is plugged into that. Like they're amplifying the work of the business. They have very clear strategic priorities and actions that they're taking that amplify the work of the businesses in such a way we believe it accelerates the impact. It's measurable. Quite frankly, it's targeted to women. And that is important as we think about not leaving women behind in our strategies, and our initiatives, and our path forward. So I give that example only to illustrate that even as we lead with the businesses, we have set up these centers of excellence because quite frankly, we believe we can do more and have the right level of impact for communities that deserve that special level of attention. You know, one of the things that's been interesting is going out to talk to our clients about this work. And very often they'll ask about all of these efforts. And sometimes I'm really struck by when smaller clients approach us. And by the way, most are smaller than JV Morgan Chase by definition. They'll say things like, how do I really make a difference? You know, I'm, I might be so much smaller. I don't have the resources to stand up all these groups. 
But when you talk about things like supplier diversity, the fact that we can look into our own spending and say, let's direct our spending in a more purposeful way. I think that is one thing that any company can do, no matter what size you are. You know, where do you choose to put your dollars? What businesses do you choose to support? And no matter what level of spending you have, you can actually make a difference by looking at, you know, others to support with your own money. Sam, I I think that's spot on. We all have limited resources. The suggestion to kind of build on your point, pick your spots where you believe you can drive sustainable change. Like as you go through your criteria on what you select to do, have a pretty high bar on, is it sustainable? Can you measure it? Does it ladder into the value proposition of your firm, right? Meaning, are you differentiated here? Is this something you actually do really well? And then the other thing to kind of think about here is you may, you know, depending on your resources or how you're thinking about it, it's perfectly okay to find a great partner. There is nothing like a great partner that may bring different skill sets and expertise that when combined with your efforts and your strategy could really have far-reaching impact and kind of multiplier effect around what you were originally thinking. So be mindful that from time to time, finding a great partner is really an intentional way to lean in around DEI. So we're going to be soon celebrating Juneteenth, which is a commemoration of the end of slavery in the United States and really has grown into a celebration of freedom and the achievements of Black Americans. Tell us about making this experience bigger here. You know, we are going to be doing a lot at the bank, not only for our employees, but really externally as well. You know, tell us about the momentum behind this and why it's so important. Well, you know, Sam, you know, that as I reflect on Juneteenth and what it commemorates, ending slavery in the United States several years after the Emancipation Proclamation, dating back to 1865. There's just so much to unpack around what that means, particularly in the Black community. So we're going to lean in on that, right? We're going to think about not only how we do our best to try to create more awareness and understanding the importance of why the ending of slavery and commemorating that very special time is so important to overall American history. We also are going to be thoughtful around making sure we connect the dots around all forms of discrimination and how they create these obstacles and this experience. And quite frankly, these longstanding barriers that don't allow the prosperity. This is a moment and a cultural moment that we want to make sure we don't miss. You're going to see us really work with external partners to convey that message in a thoughtful way, particularly as we think about the Black media. There are a number of fantastic Black media outlets that we want to partner with that can help us tell the story and create that awareness and consideration that make us all a better version of ourselves. Our employees, there is a number of things that we're going to do, specially curated events and programs that allow us to kind of advance the conversation, think about the actions and best practices on where we're seeing real change and positive momentum, highlight where we still have opportunity to grow and get better, both as a firm and as a community. You're going to see some of the things that we're going to do, and I hope others are doing just out in the marketplace, to bring others together to kind of create prosperity for businesses. So it's really the second year we've marked Juneteenth as an institution, as a firm. But of course, so many of our Black friends have really observed this holiday forever, you know, right, their whole lives. What has the holiday meant to you personally? How have you marked it growing up? I got to tell you, you know, you you learn about it in many parts of the country pretty early. I think a couple of ways that I would tell you commemorated Juneteenth and thought about it. it more for me was about inspiration. I felt like I had a responsibility that there was those that came before me, 
let's say this, those that came before me paid a price and they created a path forward for me and my family. And it is a responsibility for me to make sure that I do my part and I pay my price in whatever way that is so that the next generation continues to be better off, continues to have more equitable opportunities, even outside the Black community. How do I help others? How do I help other races and genders and sexual orientation, identities? How do I help advance inclusion in the world that I live in, where I can touch it, where I can see it, where I can impact? And so the way that I've kind of commemorated it, even from a younger age, was just feeling a sense of responsibility, obviously celebrating the fact that it was such a monumental time and place, that there's an element of responsibility that we aren't going to go backwards. As a people, as a race, we have an opportunity to create the next level of generational change. And it wasn't that long ago. And so I reflect on that and it has helped inspire me and helped me stay focused, but also helped me stay inspired you know, around the opportunity that I have in my life. I really look forward to Juneteenth, to the month, to really commemorating this and also to keep the momentum going forward, right? Not just on that day, but for the rest of the year. And as a student of history, so I'm always interested in what people read and the podcasts they listen to and the things that they use uh, to learn more. You know, what are the things that you found helpful over the last year in sharing with your colleagues who want to learn more? I do a lot of reading. I spend more time doing a lot of research, but the biggest thing that helped me over the last probably six to 12 months was going to those thought leaders that quite frankly, maybe have experienced some of the times and situations that we got a heavy dose of in 2020. The last time that we really saw in the United States in particular, but in many parts of the world, such a racial and social awakening was in the 1960s. 1964 through 1968 in particular were the Civil Rights Acts, one and two. And that was during a time where the entire world, and particularly the United States, kind of was galvanized by Dr. Martin Luther King. And for those that have studied King and all the things that were kind of around him at the time, you saw a lot of similarities today around, you know, who are going to be the leaders that step up? Who's going to lean in and take on the tough issues when it's unpopular? Or who's going to be creative and have a focus around equitable opportunities, but doing it in a nonviolent way, right? I mean, those are key elements of the principles that Dr. King taught. And so I read a lot of that over the last 12, 18 months, not because it was new information, but because I, quite frankly, I think I heard something different. I think I was able to put myself not in his shoes in in any way, but a little bit more proximate to what he was feeling and experiencing and leading through. And that if there was a really, really small role that I could play, at J.P. Morgan Chase to drive the same type of change, then this was a way for me to do it. Find that inspiration, those leaders that have you know, taken the path less traveled before us, that can maybe provide insight, experience, and inspiration. And I think even if you've listened to them before, you might hear something different now. Yeah. And maybe the hopefulness of that, we might be feeling like at least we're getting a little bit closer to the realization of some of those dreams. You know, I, I want to thank you, Brian, for your leadership over the past year. I love how you talk about getting proximate to communities and to certain situations. I think that really moves people to do more and to take action in a way they haven't in the past. So just thank you for that. And also just for inspiring so many of us during a very, very difficult year. So thank you. And thank you for being with us here. Oh, Sam, listen, I'm glad to be here. It means a lot to work alongside you and and the entire team at Women on the Move. You're doing amazing work. And, you know, I'm inspired to have a chance to work with you to do the same thing. So thanks for having me and giving me a chance to spend time today. 
Thanks for joining my conversation with Brian Lamb. What comes across to me so clearly from Brian is his dedication and passion for equity and inclusion. He is fully committed to intersectionality and to diversity, and he inspires everyone around him. I'm proud to be on his leadership team and to drive impact together. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.